The gospel comes to us today from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we must start, we must go on a journey to that land of Zebulun and Naphtali. We must go there because it is in this land that Jesus goes with a purpose. He has a specific purpose, but we cannot really fully understand that purpose unless we know the context of why he even goes there. If you were to go to Sea of Galilee, which you have the opportunity on October 26, just my shameless plug for those of you that want to come to Israel, you actually can go to this sacred land, of, so to speak. We go to Galilee on the northern blanks. You have Galilee, you have the area which would be the Sermon on the Mount, and then you have a series of other communities that all scatter themselves around the banks of the Sea of Galilee. All of these communities are the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is a place that has been decimated time and time and time again. Long before Jesus was ever on the scene, it was also the land, it was the place in which when Jacob makes his promise, receives his covenant from God, when he and his sons come into the land of Israel, the twelve tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun are actually two of Joseph's brothers, two of the tribes of Israel. And they will settle up along those northern banks of Galilee. However, during their time of settling up north there, they do what human beings do best. Sin. Amen? And it's in this land, it's in this area that it becomes critical as to what's going on in their lives because we have to know who their influence is. Off to the west are the Philistines. Directly north are the Assyrians. And off to the east is all of the Greco-Roman area. Um, in, in Joseph's time, it would have been some of the Greek cultures, which are all heavily influenced by pagan religious traditions. So for Zebulun and Naphtali, the cards are stacked against them. 
They're stacked, it's stacked against them if they live in their faithful lives, or maybe we should say their faithless lives, as time progresses and they let their faith, their trust in Yahweh, the one and only God who brought them out of Egypt, as their trust begins to wane, so does their fortitude to stand in faith. It also doesn't help that these cultures continuously have soldiers that are on these different warring expeditions coming through the northern areas of Israel, coming fighting against each other, warring against one another. And of course, unfortunately, the costs of war is when soldiers come in, there's always collateral damage. And that collateral damage are parts of this Jewish culture and the, the, uh, the ancestors of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so what do they do? They begin to assimilate. They set aside some of their faithful values. They set aside some of their traditions and embrace the traditions of the cultures who come in to save face and to also be able to provide themselves an ounce of protection because they are discovering that maybe, just maybe, in their thought, if they rely on man rather than God, that assimilation with man and its priorities will save them from the wrath in the moment, forgetting about what God commanded from the beginning. So this sets the tone up north. Even up until the time in which Jesus is coming, long before that, we hear directly out of Isaiah. Isaiah is hundreds of years before Jesus is on the scene. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says, Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah gives us those words early on, talking about the setting of Israel and the setting in which the Messiah will enter into. And at the end of Isaiah, of course, we hear this foreshadow of the virgin birth. We hear this foreshadowing of the Messiah who is to come, the Messiah who will bring the light into the darkness. And now, now Jesus, who has chosen and, quite frankly, was pushed out of his hometown of Nazareth, he comes down the way of the sea, which is one of the most beautiful places you'll ever see if you come with me to Israel. He comes down the way of the sea, and sets up home in Capernaum, right smack dab on the north bank of Galilee. The light is coming into the darkness. Let's go there for a moment. The light. Imagine your entire life living and grasping at straws for all the right answers, grasping at straws for truth, grasping at straws to make sense of it all, grasping at straws to survive, waiting for the next time that the military might, might come through to rape, pillage, and plunder, grasping at straws to uh, try to survive. It is a land of darkness. It is a shadow. All of northern Israel has become a shadow. But not only shadow and survival of day-to-day -day life, but also a shadow in their worship. They have now abandoned their Israeli tradition. They've abandoned their faith with Yahweh. They've abandoned all of that in exchange for 
false worship of our uh, worship of false idols in exchange for uh, constantly reaching out to the dead. Necromancers is now a part of their culture. They now spend time in worship, so trying to conjure up the dead to come back and tell them what to do. It's not Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol up north. Instead, God sends Christ to give them hope. God sends, God, the divine in the flesh, walks into Zebulun and Naphtali and starts to do his work. It is where Jesus sets up shop, as I said. It's where he starts to cast out demons time and again. It's where he gives sight to the blind. It's where he uh, cleanses the leper's skin. All of the major miracles that we hear about, walking on the water, casting out demons uh, from the Gerasene demoniac uh, across over in the Greek nations of the Decapolis, all of these moments, all of these miracles, all of these very divine, godly things are happening right here. And it's up north where we're also going to have in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, and even he, a chief Pharisee, he says, only a man of God can do what you're doing. I need to know where it is that your authority comes from. All of these moments in which Jesus is changing people's lives is bringing light into their darkness. It's bringing light into their darkness. Now in this morning's text, we also go from shifting there to hearing Jesus begin to preach. Because at this point in Matthew's Gospel... Jesus has spent time talking to John the Baptist earlier down at the river about having this debate about who's worthy and who's unworthy of baptism. And then, next after that baptism, Jesus is thrust into the wilderness before heading up back up north, and it's there that he will have a debate with the devil about being tested and who actually provides the bread of life. But in Matthew's Gospel, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry, his very first sermon is surmised into these short few words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus' first word to the public in Matthew's Gospel is repent. He comes into that darkness, and he's ushering in the change that everyone needs. Repent. Immediately after this, Matthew then takes us into the calling of Jesus' first disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. What is he calling them into doing? What does it mean to be called into the discipleship work of Christ? It's calling them to be preachers, believe it or not. When we as Christians believe that we are followers of Christ, whether you like it or not, you are a disciple of Christ. And whether you like it or not, you are a preacher of the gospel. Now you pay me to do it, you guys get to do it for free. <laughs> you are called to be preachers of the gospel. And what is the message that we preach? 
Jesus' first words was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. By the way, his message that repent the kingdom of God is at hand is not the gospel. In fact, the repentance that comes from that is the response to the gospel. The gospel is everything that Jesus is going to do, everything that Jesus is going to accomplish as he heads down to Jerusalem with his preachers in training. And that story of what happens in Jerusalem, that story of the cross, that story of death, that story of resurrection, that story of ascension into heaven is the gospel that they are learning to preach. What they are not going to preach is the culture of Zebulun and Naphtali. What they are not going to preach is summoning and conjuring up the dead, seeking wisdom from those who have gone before us. What they are not going to preach is the Roman secular culture. What they are being taught to preach is the love of God through the cross, which as Paul says in Corinthians and Nancy read for us, is a stumbling block and is foolishness for those who cannot understand what Jesus did on the cross. So if we are disciples, like Peter and Andrew, James and John, if we are following them, if we are following Christ, what is the gospel that we preach? Well, maybe we start back with last week's text again. Last week in John's gospel, we had John the Baptist had just gotten done at, with his work down at the river. He had just finished the baptisms. And there is Jesus on the pathway about leaving the river. And it's at that point that John the Baptist points with his long bony finger and he says, behold, that is the Lamb of God who has come into this world to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is the preacher of all preachers. And what does he do? He points them out. And we heard that Andrew was one of them that decided to follow. And after, of course, spending time with Jesus, Andrew goes back to his brother Simon Peter, and he tells him about this Messiah and this encounter with Jesus. And it's there that Jesus calls Peter. He changes his name from Simon to Cephas, which means Peter. So now, here they are. Jesus has come back to Galilee, and there they are on the banks, and Jesus says, hey, Andrew, Peter, remember that time a while back? Drop your nets and follow me. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. What do they do? They drop it. Why? Because they know he is the Lamb of God. They don't know what that ensues. They do not know what entails, but they follow. They're going to learn to preach. They're going to learn to teach. They're going to learn to preach as Paul shares with us in Corinthians, we must unite in God's gospel. We must unite in truth. And sometimes preaching truth is hard, amen? And the times we live in, oh, preaching truth is hard. I'm going to give you a really shallow example, right? Two weeks ago, my daughter Elise and I, we were, we were over at Hilger's Gulch. How many of you have been to Hilger's Gulch this year? A handful of us, right? If you haven't been to Hilger's Gulch, come on, go get, wrap yourself in bubble wrap and head on out there. It's covered in ice. It's glorious. Takes you back to your childhood. And on this particular afternoon, there was about 30, 40 kids all on this hillside. It was a beautiful day like yesterday. We're standing at the top. Elise and I have just accomplished our first slide and almost killed three kids on the way. We're back at the top of the hill, 
And I'm just standing here perplexed. And Elise looks at me and she goes, Dad, where should I go? I mean, I don't want to hit anyone. She's trying to find her line, right? And I'm looking at all the kids who are coming back up the hill. Because which direction do they go back up? Straight up the middle of the dang hill. It makes a whole lot of sense if you ask me. Amen? And I'm standing here. I'm like, Something is gonna, someone's going to be ushered out in an ambulance at some point soon. And so at the top of the hill, I shouted down the hill in my big adult voice. I said, can all of you please move to the side of the hill when you're coming back up? And the kids stood there, and they were stunned, dead in their tracks. And what did they do next? They moved to the side of the hill, right? What blew my mind is right as soon as I said that and watched these kids start moving to the side, I heard about five other parents off to the side say, Oh, thank you, sir. I'm finally, someone said it. And I think they thought I was going to be on their side in this moment. Instead, I channeled my inner John the Baptist, and I looked at them, and I said, well, shame on you guys. Why did it take you so long to say the same gosh darn thing? And I don't think I said gosh darn. And they sheepishly looked at me and wallowed in what they just said. Sometimes truth... Sometimes love of neighbors, sometimes kindness for someone is just being bold enough to tell them to move to the side of the hill. Amen? Sometimes speaking truth is going to save someone's ACL for the rest of their life. Sometimes truth is looking deep into that loved one's eyes and saying, you have a problem. You are addicted, and this is tearing this family apart. We need to get you help. Sometimes speaking truth is looking right at a brother and sister in Christ and saying, God loves you, God created you, you are exactly what you are to be, and I want to help you understand that, I want you to see that, and I want you to be in love with everyone else around you, exactly the way you are. Sometimes truth is looking at another brother and sister and saying, you know what, I see you in church in every single week, you're sitting in those pews, we're smiling and all, but I know what's going on at home. And I don't think God is okay with it. And I want to love you, and I want to care for you, and I'm going to pray for you, and I want to walk with you so that we can both be better in the light of Christ. Because we live in a land of Zebulun and Naphtali, we live in a land of shadow that needs to see Christ's light. We are not the gospel. We are not the good news. We are not the ticket to someone's salvation. But the message of truth, the kindness and love we can bestow, even if it ruffles some feathers from time to time, is exactly the love that Christ brings in to the land of Galilee. And he changed their lives. And he brought them hope. And he brought them the answer, the promise that was given to Jacob and Joseph, their ancestors long ago. He brought them that promise that was finally to be fulfilled. So brothers and sisters in Christ, drop your nets, follow Christ, and learn to preach. Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to hand out t-shirts and water bottles and pamphlets saying, come to my church, it's really nice, we got donuts on Sunday morning, no offense Boyd, I like the donuts, we need the donuts. <laughs> but if that's our only ticket to come to church, I err on the side that there's something much deeper and more profound that we are looking for when we come here. But your preaching, your discipleship, has got to be more than handing out a pamphlet. 
It's got to be more than handing out a water bottle with a church name on it. It's got to be more than just saying, I like Jesus, Christ is in my life. We preach the gospel. And we stand in truth for God's sake. Thanks be to God. Amen.